This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. supposed to break out of here don't be a stranger he surrendered almost without a fight I don't like it at least he's back where he belongs get up I set a trap and you sprang it gloriously now let's get this party started <laughs> There's no escape, Joker. I don't want to escape. I'm having way too much fun. It's over, Joker. Over? Why, my dear delusional Dark Knight... Hasn't even begun. <laughs> hey, everybody, this is Bad Fans. Yes, we're still here. Um, my name is Dane, and I am hosting again after uh, Tim uh, lost our little bet. Uh, so I am back hosting. This is episode number 185. And um, Tim, I I do have a a question for you, but I don't want you to answer it, and I want to figure it out. Mm, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So in Lord of the Rings, right? Mm-hmm. Hugo Weaving's character is called Aramor. Not... <laughs> I was gonna say that's the question you don't want me to answer. <laughs> yeah. No, I, that is not his am name. Am I close? <laughs> Not really. It doesn't begin with an A? No. Okay. <laughs> Should I give you a hint as far as what letter it starts with? Mm. No, not yet. Okay. Because <laughs> I have one more guess. Okay. Is it... Borner? <laughs> No, that is not his name. Baramir. That's that's close to another character's name, but no, yeah, that's not a real one, right? Yeah, his name is Boromir. Boromir, yeah. Okay, uh, give me the first letter. 
begins with an E. E. Yes. Aragon. <laughs> Aragon begins with an A. <laughs> no, no, like E R A G O. Is it like a common name or is it a fantasy name? That's a fantasy name. Well, I'm sure there are some people named after it now, but <laughs> it, it's not common El- though. Elmir. Close. Yeah, Elohim. first syllable right. <laughs> Elohim. <laughs> You're just combining <laughs> L and Tolkien. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, okay, I give up. What is uh, it? It is Elrond. Elrond. Yes. Oh, okay. Elrond. And he is... Liv Tyler's dad. Yes. Pretty much the leader of the elves. Erwin, right? Erwin. Yeah. <laughs> Close. Her was Arwen. Arwen. Dang it. And uh Kate Blanchett's character is Guinevere. <laughs> now you're mixing up with the Arthurian legend. <laughs> but it does uh, begin with a G, Galadriel. Galadriel. Right. I got it. Uh, that was going to be my next guest, Tim. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it was. I think it's time for you to do a Lord of the Rings rewatch. But at the, at the same yeah. time, I do love teaching you the Lord of the Rings name locations. <laughs> you I, always I, have I do, something new. I do believe they're all on Netflix. So I know a few few of them are. I'm not sure about all three of them, but yeah, I actually just watched the Tolkien movie that came out earlier this year. Yeah, it was that? actually really good. No, now I gotta say I'm not 100% sure like how accurate everything was in the movie because I know when you do a biopic, there's stuff that's not always gonna be, you know, too true to what happened. But yeah. overall, I thought it was you know really well done and seeing his that part of his early life because you know in interviews that you mostly see of Tolkien, he's kind of an older man after the Lord of the Rings has been such a big success. But kind of seeing a movie about him in his younger days and his time in world war one and the little things that he went through that showed his inspiration to come up with the story for Lord of the Rings. I thought was really good. What was the story behind the trees? Those talking <laughs> trees. Did they get into that? Not specifically, at least from what I took I from it, but <laughs> you know, just part of the fantasy element where I guess you want to create these beings that are, you know, Fantastical, yeah. but yet, you know, <laughs> try to do something different with it, I guess. Wasn't he like an environmentalist or something? Like he 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 was really critical about how um like how man was deforesting their forests or something. That's why he might have been. I'm not one hundred percent sure. They didn't really <laughs> go into that in the movie though. Yeah, it's mostly about World War One, right? Uh, and this time, you know, getting into Oxford is fascination with language and his you know uh, the friends that he made during college and school and all that like i said during the war and his relationship with his wife or his then soon to be wife in the movie and how that all unfolded so i mean he had an interesting life that's that's for sure and then put it all into well i shouldn't say put all of it into but a lot of it went into one of the greatest stories ever told so (laughs) it was just it was a fascinating uh watch to see all that and nicholas holt did a good job of portraying the young tolkien so who you might know from Beast in the recent X-Men movies and the runner-up for Batman <laughs> <laughs> next to Robert Pattinson. So 
He might not be able to be Batman or Bruce Wayne, but you could always say you got to play J.R.R. Tolkien. Wasn't uh, Tolkien old when he wrote <laughs> Lord of the Rings? Not really. Well, The Hobbit came uh, out in the 30s, so he was kind of like probably middle-aged around then. Then when Lord of the Rings came out, he was, you know, he was older when Lord of the Rings yeah. came out, so he wasn't super young. But Yeah, that, that must be weird. Um, you know, because they, they don't show him actually writing Lord of the Rings then, right? No. The very yeah. last scene of the movie is him beginning the start to start writing The Hobbit. You know, it's the oh. very famous intro to The Hobbit. You know, like, what, like, like, see, now I'm blanking. <laughs> Here I can say it's famous. <laughs> I can't remember it line from line, but it's like deep in the hole in the ground, there lived a Hobbit, which begins oh. the book. And you show him writing that down. Yeah, right, right. So, yeah, I, I definitely Do- recommend it. Do they have great age makeup? Uh, a little bit. Uh, but not the whole full-blown <laughs> CG yeah. thing where they do to make people look younger or older. Just little touches of gray in his hair by the time he's writing The Hobbit from when you first seen him in the movie. So, Yeah, that's one of my big questions, you know. Um, you know, Avengers. Um, what is that last one called? Uh, Civil War? No. Uh, don't tell me dang it Tim. <laughs> too late <laughs> end game sorry um uh that captain america scene mm-hmm. i wonder if that's makeup or if that's fully cgi'd i know the majority of it was makeup but yeah. i can't imagine that there wasn't a little bit of cg in there just mm-hmm. to maybe touch it up a little bit but i know the majority of it was makeup uh i see they did a good job. When I first saw it, I wasn't even sure if that was Chris Evans. I was oh, thinking, yeah. They did just get an older actor <laughs> to go play this like part. <laughs> yeah. They did a good job, though. Yeah, they did. Um, but anyway, let's talk about uh, another movie, Tim. Uh, let's talk. Let's do our uh, Dark Knight Rises minute by minute commentary. We're Speaking of the one. end game, we're almost in the end game of the Dark Knight Rises. Well, not really, Tim. We still got like, <laughs> like 45 well, minutes left. Our commentary is not in the end game, but the movies <laughs> is in the end game. We're comf- comfortably in the third act, right? Yes, there you go. <laughs> um, so for this episode, we're going for a minute 133 to 134. Uh, so as always, grab your VHS copy, grab your DVD copy, grab your Blu-ray your laser disc, your beta tape, your HD DVD. How could I ever forget that one? Your blockbuster <laughs> rental, uh, your Netflix physical media uh, subscription, and grab you, your favorite favorite transferred copy <laughs> of <laughs> The Dark Knight Rises. Your VHS DVD converted c- converted copy. Now I'm going to leave the countdown. So, Tim, are you ready? Yes, I am. Good, because I'm not. Okay, now I'm ready. <laughs> Thanks right. for asking. Three, two, one, hit play. Bane is just knocking down police officers left and right. Yeah. Like I, said, I think I said this on the last one. I love the lead up to Batman and Bane's rematch here. It's them taking down their enemies. That snow doesn't look real. Yeah. Probably because it's not. <laughs> yeah. If you remember, these are one of the first, you know, set videos that came out for the movie back in 2011. Right. I just remember seeing, oh man, like Batman's fighting in the daytime. <laughs> this looks a little different. 
but it's just cool to see him and Bane go at it here, like getting our first look in the behind the scenes video, or I should say set videos. And it's Gordon's plan to get the bomb. Where did they get that bus from? Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure there's one laying around. Yeah, tour bus. Gordon is just having frustration after frustration <laughs> these last <laughs> few days of Gotham. He just needs more men, I think. Yeah. Just take a couple help. more men from that big fight and then... Yeah, but they probably knew that was the main battle to get as much men there to distract them so they could try to get that bomb. Yeah. But will they get it in time? We'll... Well, I don't know if we'll find out in the next episode, but <laughs> we'll get closer to finding out. <laughs> we may not, Tim, because... This movie is two hours and 45 minutes. <laughs> yes, and we're only on what, the two hours and 14 minute mark. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we got a ways to go. Um, but why don't you tell our, uh, tell everybody about our featured topic for this episode, too? Yeah, this featured topic is going to be another a big milestone for a, a piece of Batman content. Um, this last, I believe it was this past Sunday, um, the end of August, I forget the what was August thirtieth or August thirty first. I forget the exact day. This past last weekend was the official twenty uh, fifth. Twenty fifth. Okay, so yeah. a few weeks. But it was the official ten year anniversary of Batman: Arkham Asylum, and man, that was something where I like I knew it was coming, but it wasn't one of the huge anniversary marks I was thinking of this year and a year that was full full of big anniversary milestones. But when I saw that, man, ten years. That's Hard to believe because it feels like that game just came out. And the Arkham series has become such a big part, you know, of the Batman multimedia franchise, you know, with successful successful comics, obviously, movies, TV shows, and now in the video game front. It's all thanks to Arkham. And the first game that kicked it all off was Arkham Asylum. So and it was 10 years ago. So we're going to do a little retrospective on the very first Arkham Asylum video game to celebrate its 10-year anniversary. And for this one, I kind of wanted to go back before the game came out just a little bit to see how we were feeling about it because we weren't doing a podcast back then when the game came out. And we pretty much covered all of the other games since Arkham Asylum. I mean, Arkham City came out in 2011. That's where we were, we were doing the Gotham Knights Online podcast and we were c- covering it there. And obviously when we started Bat Fans in 2012, the year later we got Arkham Origins and we covered Arkham Knight obviously extensively, but we couldn't get a chance to do Arkham Asylum. And I think this is the perfect opportunity to kind of show how we were feeling about that time. Yeah, Cause it was a very different state for Batman and video games back in 2009. And for me personally, when it was first announced, I just remember thinking, Oh, we're getting a new Batman game. I probably shouldn't get too excited about it because for anyone who wasn't a hardcore gamer back in the, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, Batman doesn't have the greatest history of video games, especially in the console generation of, you know, PS2, Xbox, and up until, you know, the Arkham came out in 2009, Xbox 360, PS3 eras, you know, has he had a spotty track record when it came to video games. So I couldn't help but think, oh, cool, but I'm probably going to be disappointed with it. I mean, Batman video games up until that time i got excited for a lot of them and some of them were good like the you know uh, batman vengeance games that was based on the animated series but then you had other ones like dark tomorrow which was just awful (laughs) so i just think okay we'll wait and see how this goes 
And then as we got closer and closer to the release, we saw when I saw images for it, I just remember thinking, man, this looks really cool. But I bet you the controls are going to be awful. It's going to have the worst camera angles. <laughs> but it looked really good. And then you heard Paul Dini's writing the story for it. I go, mm, that's obviously a win for it. I mean, I'm sure Paul Dini's going to come up with a cool story. But again, that can't save you know shoddy gameplay <laughs> and development for it. So I'm still not getting too excited. And then they got revealed who, at first I should say, I remember the guy that Rocksteady teasing, you know, if we want to get voice actors that honor, you know, the rich legacy of these characters of Batman and the Joker. And I kept thinking, hmm, there's only a few that come to mind <laughs> that I think could do that. And of course, it got revealed that Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill would be back playing Batman and the Joker in this game. And that's what it got me thinking, okay, this could be really cool, but man, I just hope it plays good. <laughs> I just hope the controls are good the cameras doesn't you know distract you and ruin your gameplay and then there came a demo for it i forget how long in advance they released the demo before the game release but i know it was a couple of months i downloaded it and i was like okay here we go hopefully it plays good and even if it doesn't i should remember it's just a demo they had time to fix things and, and tighten certain issues up and when i played it i go oh this actually wasn't bad at all <laughs> it controlled good i didn't have any camera issues but you know it wasn't a very long demo so it just it got me more hopeful that's that's for sure and but what really kind of set my excitement level through the roof is when the reviews actually started coming out for it and this is another thing right don't remember exactly how far in advance reviews came out i want to say it was at least a week before the game was released and then i kept seeing nines nine out of ten five out of fives even places probably even at tens out of tens it's just like high scores that i never would have imagined a batman video game to get i was like wow this is you know not only being hailed as the a great batman game or the greatest batman game ever but it's being held as one of the best video games of this console generation and of this year and i there hasn't been a superhero game i think that ever did that before Arkham. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, this looks like the real deal. <laughs> the production value looks great for it with the graphics. They got Paul Dini writing the story. You got Kevin Conroy, Mark Hamill. It's getting all these great reviews from a gameplay standpoint. Uh, give me this game now. <laughs> you know, I just cannot wait for it. And I did pre-order it to get the collector's edition. And I, you know, with that collector's battering which i still have hanging on or sitting on my dresser that looks cool from a distance but when you get close up to it and touch it <laughs> it's not really that great probably the biggest disappointment with the arc of special edition pre-order but um so yeah leading my time leading up to the release of arkham asylum was kind of a uphill battle i guess you could say not super excited when it was first announced cautiously optimistic but then as you know, more information started trickling down. It's got to play a little demo than the reviews. That's where it started hitting me where this could be something special and I can't wait to get my hands on it. So that was my lead up toward the release of Arkham Asylum. So um, I'm, I'm sure that was the case for other Bat fans who have been jaded and disappointed with other this, uh, bad Batman video games prior to that. But what was your experience leading up to the release of Arkham Asylum, Dean? Was it similar, different? Um, I, I came into it kind of late. Mm. when they started releasing pictures for it okay and i i was i was sold on it um i actually went to gamestop <laughs> and uh pre-ordered this that's where i got it too um, 
and uh like the guy behind the counter was like oh yeah i i think this is gonna be a good game because i don't know about you but i i never played a rock steady game i don't know if this is this was, their, was this their debut um game it's definitely their biggest game they've ever done first but they maybe might have done a smaller scale game but i'm not 100 percent sure it actually might be their first that's something we should probably look up oh okay uh well anyway uh yeah so um pre-ordered it um kind of didn't go and pick it up when when the game came out i mean (laughs) really yeah this isn't like how we have it today where you pre-order it digitally and it's there and it downloads and you can play it Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah so I, i i didn't uh pick pick it up and uh you know, you get that call from GameStop. Oh, we're putting this back into stock, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's Man, been, how long did you wait? Uh, it, it, I want to say like a month. Wow. Uh, <laughs> because when I worked at GameStop, the general yeah. rule was for pre-orders, if you don't pick it up in two days, it's you know free for whoever wants it. <laughs> it goes back really? on the shelf. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah, uh, totally forgot about it. Uh just kind of didn't want to go to the store to pick it up because um, it's kind of out of the way and you know you get traffic and everything but um, I I read the uh, IGN review of it and um, I can't remember who the author um, was but, it was Greg Miller oh was it yeah yeah and he said like oh th- this is the greatest superhero game ever made I say, like, oh, okay. I I gotta go pick this up, so I picked it up and played it and loved it. So yeah, that's uh, that's my story. And I do remember the uh, uh, the the Dark Knight video game. You remember that? The one that got canceled. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't that around the same time? It should have been. Yeah, or well, a bit closer to um, uh, the the premiere of the Dark Knight. Yeah, because you know video game movie tie-in you always got to come out either right before or just a little bit after a movie so i'm sure the dark knight game was planned for 2008 which obviously just would have been a year before arkham asylum so probably a smart decision for you know whether it was warner brothers games or like i don't remember who the developer was for that dark knight game but probably best it was canceled (laughs) if it meant if it meant hindering the release of arkham asylum in any way so yeah probably the right move yeah, yeah, I remember. It, it, uh, oh, sorry, um, this was actually their second game. Their first game was called Urban Chaos Riot Response. Yeah, never even heard of that one. <laughs> Me neither. It's a PlayStation Two title. Okay. Uh, I wonder what what year was it? Two thousand six. Okay, well, that's not too far before Arkham Asylum, so. And it got all right reviews. 7.9 out of 10 on IGN. I wonder if there's... Uh, games. What if you were to play that game if you'd notice any hints for what was to come in Arkham as far as gameplay style? Probably. Um, yeah, it looks yeah, like... It, it looks like a game where you gotta, like, beat up people. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. It looks like a combat game. Yeah, I remember just the day it came out, I was just fully excited for it. Like I said beforehand, be a little apprehensive. But once all that stuff came down, 
like the reviews. I just cannot wait to get my hands on it. And that day at work, I remember just playing the entire Batman, the animated series soundtrack, just to get me in that Batman mood, <laughs> knowing that I'm going to be playing a game with Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill, getting like, part of me was thinking, a continu- not a continuation of Batman, the animated series, but, you know, how does that vein of it with the voice actors involved and seeing them portray these characters in such a lifelike, realistic way that we've never seen them before? I just cannot wait. So I picked it up. Obviously, right after work, went immediately to GameStop, got my collector's edition. It was such a big box with the battering. And another cool aspect was the uh, journal that it came with. It was like the psychiatrist's diary that has the interview with the Arkham patients and detailed information with that. That was pretty That was probably the best uh, collector's edition feature in that box set there. So that was cool. Yeah, because if I remember correctly, the the battering wasn't that good, right? Yeah. It was like plastic. Yeah. It's full yeah. of mine had like scratches on it. So like I said, it looks cool from a distance, but if you go close up to it and you touch it, yeah. it's like <laughs> a little disappointing. But my rule is, you know, I couldn't play it right when I got it because I have to let the sun go down. I have to play in the dark. No glare on my TV. So <laughs> it was in the summertime, late August. So it wasn't getting dark right away. So I had to wait till like 7, 30, 8 o'clock. But once... The sun went down. It was just a night sky. I immediately popped in that game. And boy, was I transported into a Batman experience like no other. That's This is something so special, I think, about that first section of the game. It starts off right away, as anyone who plays it knows, with Batman already apprehending the Joker. And you're seeing him in the Batmobile delivering him to Arkham Asylum. And all that, it's great. But once you actually get into Arkham... And you're controlling Batman as, you know, security, police officers, as wheeling Joker, strapped in through Arkham. You're seeing the different inmates. You see them. You see other Arkham Asylum uh, guards bringing Killer Croc down an elevator. Just so immersive. I just remember just being blown away immediately in that first section of just controlling Batman as you're walking the Joker through Arkham Asylum. The graphics are amazing. The voice acting is amazing and it's just like wow a batman experience that i've never had before in in a video game it just felt so immersive you're immediately drawn into it and it just perfectly sets up the adventure you're gonna have of being batman trapped in arkham asylum for the entire game and it was just you know it was a magical experience for a diehard batman fan who's <laughs> been wanting a batman game like this to be up there amongst the elite video games at the time to be recognized as one of the best and you immediately feel that as you start playing and then the combat starts and she's talk about a revolutionary aspect to action games and combat that's another standout for the arkham series is the free flow combat that it established it's just so fluid and tight and something that's been missing <laughs> or one of the things that's been missing in great batman games is that great combat you expect to play as being batman and arkham the Rocksteady just nailed it in Arkham Asylum with how simple but yet kind of difficult to master it is and the way you rack up points through that and building up your combo meter. And it's just so much fun. Immediately when, I mean, it's a small little skirmish against some Arkham inmates. It's a perfect setup to, you know, eventually what could be a mob <laughs> attack that you get later on in the games. You have to take face down against tons of enemies. And that's where your skills really come in with that free flow combat. But it's, I just love how simple it is, but yet, you know, and how, you know, difficult to master it can be in keeping your combo up, but it's so much fun. The way that Batman's animations 
of his fighting techniques and how he takes down enemies just looks so cool and something we haven't seen in a Batman video game before. It's just so, so much fun. Like I said, so revolutionary because you see it all the time now in action games where it just takes that free flow style combat that was established and perfected in Arkham Asylum. So just right away, that game sucked you in as for how special it's going to be from you know the story aspect of it being immersed into that world of Arkham Asylum and geeking out over it as a Batman fan, but then having it all come together with great combat. It's, it was so good. I, that first portion of the game is always going to be special for me just because how mind-blowing it was experiencing experiencing it for the first time and just knowing what it was going to lead to for the rest of the game. It just Rocksteady did such a good job of making you realize you're in for something special as a Batman fan in the first few minutes of the game. Yeah, the, the combat in the game, I, I know it gets a lot of praise, and it should, because it's great. Uh, but that wasn't actually the first time I've experienced that, um, con- you know, I don't know what you call it, the scheme, controller scheme or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, there was a game called Sleeping Dogs. Um, that vaguely sounds familiar, but I can't yeah, place it, what the game actually is. It was actually supposed to be um, part of the Yakuza series. Okay. But they decided to make their own thing. So you play a Chinese detective in China, of course, and um, you got to go around and uh, solve crime and fight people. Um, and the control scheme of that game and Arkham Asylum is almost exactly the same. Um, Interesting. You know, you, yeah, you have like a hard hit, a light hit, strong block light block um except uh well i guess you get you you kind of get it in arkham asylum but sleep, sleeping dogs you you use a gun too um and you know in arkham asylum you have like the the, the grapple and stuff so, yeah um yeah it wasn't actually the first time i've i've experienced but they're super super si- similar um uh to play so Oh, yeah, I never knew that because like, I never played that game. So that type of yeah. combat was my first experience to it with Arkham Asylum. And just remember being blown away how great it was. <laughs> so just, it always seemed like they cracked the code that yeah. was so simple, but yet difficult for most developers to pull off, especially in a Batman game. But so good. I just love the counter. The countering system was what to me set it apart where you just got that notification real quick that someone's attacking you and you hit that Y button to do the counter. And you just get a really cool batman animation of him blocking it or taking down the enemy yeah you see i uh sleeping dogs also has that so like i'm wondering which which game came first yeah (laughs) do you remember what year sleeping dogs came out i want to say the same year (laughs) Uh, square enix uh what did surprise me 2008 yeah the year before then yeah (laughs) uh but yeah but obviously doesn't have the same recognition as Batman Arkham Asylum does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely not. Um, both are great games. Uh, if you haven't played Sleeping Dogs and you see it cheap, I, I'd buy it. Um, but yeah, um, it was just like, I, I played Sleeping Dogs first. And, you know, I I was like, wow, this feels really good. You know, you, you can counter, you, you know, you have that meter that you can charge up and do a special thing. Uh, you can block, you can kick, you're flying all over the screen, you know. Yeah, so, and then, yeah, same thing, but... 
I mean, they, I think Rocksteady knew they had such a great combat system with Arkham Asylum that they had that the uh, challenge room mode that's separate from the main story, which, man, provided me hours of gameplay time <laughs> besides the main campaign of Arkham Asylum because my goal was to get every achievement on that game. And you to do that, you had to get the highest rankings on all those challenge rooms. And boy, did that take take a while. <laughs> I remember yeah. some late nights just playing one room just to try to get that perfect store, score <laughs> and have your combo not drop throughout the entire round of that challenge room. And it can be very, very challenging, as obviously that was the point with it being called the challenge rooms. But it definitely lived up to the name. And I remember getting the last or finishing the last challenge room with the highest ranking and unlocking that final achievement, which I believe is called like the Dark Knight achievement, meaning you've got 100% everything in the game and just having the biggest triumphant reaction to it. <laughs> that was like my most accomplished achievement I ever got, the one I'm most proud of <laughs> during that time and probably still today because it just took so long and those challenges were so hard. But when I got it, it was such, you know, like I said, a triumphant moment in my gamer <laughs> score, I guess, achievement career. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. Even though sometimes it got frustrating, the combat never ceased to be fun. I just remember when you have that, like your combos rankings almost up to 80 and it gets real high. You're close to the end, but then you get hit and it goes all the way down to zero. You're just like, ah. Oh. <laughs> it just felt like all your hard work in that one challenge room goes down the drain. If you're up to a high a tier in your combo meter and then it just goes down with one little hit, that's the hard part. You all be doing so good that the last minute you get hit and it all goes down the drain but it made for you know i guess had a lot of fun but challenging moments of the game but it was all worth it when i got that achievement so the, those yeah. challenge rooms were fun too and also big... the, the uh the joker teeth i don't know if you, yeah, you got right. that yeah <laughs> I, like that i said i got all of them so yeah. <laughs> had to search high and low for those joker teeth because yeah. that was a Another great aspect of Arkham Asylum is that, you know, we're praising the combat, but the way it incorporated other Batman lore and villains into the game without actually having them be in it or a big focus of the story was great, too. I mean, obviously, the big thing are the Riddler puzzles, and those are awesome. I mean, besides looking for the Riddler trophies, the little Riddler, like riddles that you'd have to piece together and find a certain location throughout Arkham Asylum and then kind of use your detective vision to scan it to solve the riddle. I love those. Searching those out, trying to figure out the clues, and then when you see an iconic Batman, either item or location or a villain, like like a Scarface puppet just sitting around in Arkham, and you got to scan that as one of Riddler's uh, puzzles. And lots, a lot of his puzzles have to deal with other villains and some of their gimmicks that they have. Just a bunch of great Easter eggs and stuff that revolve around Batman's lore that was just incorporated to the game beautifully that you know didn't have to do with the main story but as diehard Batman fans we were eating it all up we just loved how this encompassed so much of Batman's history into that one game and yet there was still room to expand on more Batman's lore obviously with the sequels that came after it but just experiencing this game back in 2009 for the first time I was just blown away how much they incorporated into this one gaming experience with Batman did you happen to get all the Riddler trophies and solve all his puzzles? No, I gave up. <laughs> I was like, you know what? I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do this. <laughs> it's, 
Especially like, so uh, especially the uh, Riddler trophies, like you said. It's like uh, I don't, I, I don't have the patience for this. <laughs> That's a good thing you're not Batman, Dane. You just yeah. give up on that. <laughs> like you know what? Uh, let's just let's just not solve this Riddler puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> I got other fish to fry here in Arkham. <laughs> But another big aspect of the game was the stealth mode for it. Now, I'll be honest, stealth-style gameplay is not my favorite when it comes to different gameplay mechanics. Like in Metal Gear Solid, I know that's a big aspect of it, too. And in the Arkham games, though, it worked well enough where I didn't get you know, too well, I was bored or frustrated with it. But it wasn't my absolute favorite. And it's not to say that they didn't do it well. It's just, again, not my favorite aspect of any type of video gameplay. But... With Batman, we know he has to have great stealth abilities, as you know the character has shown in a bunch of his stories. So he has to have it here in Arkham, and it just makes sense for you know sneaking around inmates and to rescue hostages. That's what made it real fun when you had to rescue a hostage, but yet stay out of sight and taking down enemies with your stealth takedown moves was really cool. And when there's a lot of enemies, it can get pretty challenging as well. But it was also cool how you could you know use your different gadgets to take down enemies. You had your uh, smoke bombs, obviously. You had your uh, explosive gel that you could spray paint on the wall, set it up to then detonate it from a distance when you see two inmates walking around to take them out. So the way they not only incorporated some cool stealth moves that Batman himself takes down enemies with, but also with your gadgets was also done really well, too. Yeah, and I I don't know if I'm misremembering it, but um, the detective mode... Didn't it also show the um, uh, the the bad guy's nervousness, whatever? Yeah, that's yeah, right. And, I would measure that. Uh-huh. And the the AI would change, and uh, in, in, instead of just walking in a straight line, the, the the bad guy would be like turning around and you know shaking and stuff. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, th- I I thought that was a cool uh, change. Definitely. And just even the way the bad guys would talk when they get nervous, yeah. <laughs> suspecting Batman might be there. Uh, they just did such a great job of, you know, yeah, making well, you feel like you're Batman <laughs> scary, using his scare tactics to take down these criminals. Uh, one thing I will criticize the game uh, for is Batman going through a door. It, it just doesn't <laughs> seem right. Uh, you, you get this in all of the, the Arkham games. You, you, you know, you sneak through sneak past people through the through grates through the gargoyles um and you get to the end of the level and you just walk through a door you know? yeah. <laughs> that's it's a bit anticlimactic but, yeah uh, i yeah. guess it's it's about the journey <laughs> Pretty much. I, mean, I guess it is rare to see Batman just use a doorknob and just go yeah. normally through a door <laughs> in certain instances. But never really thought about it that way. Yeah. Well, Get your now, the, now the game's ruined. Thanks, Dean. Yeah. Well, I just figured Batman doesn't use doors because he might get his cape caught. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, like, really pay attention to that. <laughs> that should be a new mode in the next Arkham game. Just making through doors, a series of doors without getting your cape stuck. Yeah. That would be the hardest achievement slash trophy to get. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but man, all that great stuff is what makes that game so special. But of course, the story for it being written by Paul Dini. I mean, God, <laughs> I just love, again, how they incorporated so much of Batman's 
villains and lore into this one game and the story for it was Joker taking over Arkham Asylum, having you deliver him there, all being like all part of his plan and the way he used the different inmates of Arkham, which made for some really cool boss fights. That was another thing I was excited about. I mean, you know, you're going to be having boss fights, obviously with the Joker <laughs> later on, but uh, with Bane, Killer Croc, Poison Ivy, all that stuff that you I just couldn't wait to experience all in, in Arkham. And again, I think that's such a big reason why I like this game so much and why it works so well. It's a huge game during the time. Of course, you know, things got bigger with Arkham City, Arkham Knight, but I just loved how it was all confined into Arkham Asylum, but it, yet it still felt like you're exploring this huge world, but it never felt out of place that, you know, Arkham felt too big or it's unrealistic that Arkham, you know, has these different locations and whatnot. It all felt like, you know, this would be Arkham Asylum that you'd be exploring and having to go through all these different parts of it to take down these villains. They just did such a great job in the level design. And the interactions that Batman had with all the villains did not disappoint. I mean, obviously his banter with Joker was, you know, as good as you were expecting it to be being written from Paul by Paul Dini, being performed by Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill. And I don't want to sell Harley short here either, because this is another reason that I you know, put Arkham Asylum. I've made it no secret that it is my favorite of the Arkham series, but this is the only Arkham game with Arlene Sorkin playing Harley. And you know how she's my favorite voice actress for Harley, the original, the one who's I associate the most with Harley as a character. And just hearing her back as Harley with Mark Hamill's Joker was such a treat. And I appreciate it even more now since it was her final performance as Harley. And unfortunately, I only got to do this one game, but she knocked it out of the park as well with her Harley performance. It's just so good. And the story of the game, you know, it's kind of, I don't want to say controversial, but maybe I know some felt disappointed to where it led with the Titan formula and spoiler alert <laughs> for a game that's 10 years old now, if you haven't played it, but with Joker, you know, taking that formula and very much becoming Bane Joker <laughs> at the end of that is the final fight. And I will say it, wasn't something that I thought was mind-blowingly great, but I didn't hate it at the same time. It felt natural for the story to go in that direction. It did seem a little weird facing off against a giant monster Joker um, <laughs> for the final the boss fight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I will say the story, it made the story better in the sequels, like in Arkham City and how it affected Joker, and then later on in Arkham Knight. So while at the time it might have seemed like something that felt a little strange for seeing Joker as a giant monster, Bane-type villain. I think it served the character better later on in the stories for what he had to go through and how it affects Batman later on in Arkham City in an Arkham Knight. So didn't realize it then, but it did set up some pretty cool stuff with the Joker later on. Yeah, and I I understand people's, um, you know, people not liking it and it not making sense or whatever, not being good. But uh, I thought it was a fun fight. Yeah, uh, that's try, true. <laughs> trying to avoid the arms. and Doesn't he also have like a hurricane move or a tornado move? Where Not he's, that like, I remember, but uh, maybe you might be right, though. It's, again, it's been a while since I played yeah. it. Yeah, I can't remember. But yeah, I I liked it just from a pure fun gameplay uh, standpoint. Mm. But yeah, it, it might be, be different from you because, you know, how you're, how you're talking about uh, Paul Dini and loving the story and stuff. I can see how you can take that and be like, oh, why did they go this way? Mm. 
Yeah, like I said, it wasn't the worst thing in the world for me, but it felt a little strange, I should say, is <laughs> when I got to that moment seeing Joker inject all that Titan formula and becoming that big monster. But um, yeah, so that was the last boss fight, but the game was filled with, you know, other great boss fights with iconic Batman villains. So out of all of them, Dane, which one would you say was your favorite boss fight from Arkham Asylum? Uh, can I mention something else before? Um, uh, so something story related. Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I really, really liked the the flashbacks where uh, Bruce flashes back. Um, or not flashback. He He's under the Scarecrow's... Um, uh, Toxic, fear toxin, right? yeah. Well, yeah. I was going to get toxin. to that later, but go ahead and bring it bring it up now. Well, it, it <laughs> does lead into, it does lead into my favorite boss fight, though. Okay, and I <laughs> you can probably tell who it is. Um, but I like the flashbacks where you're walking through the hallway and Bruce is a kid, and you know it's every single Batman thing has to reference the murder of Thomas and Martha Wayne. But I I, I feel they did a great job with. Uh, with Arkham Asylum, which leads me into my favorite boss fight, uh, which is the Scarecrow fight. <laughs> um, not only in this game, but also in Arkham City. Uh, this game, it's like a platform. It reminds me of uh, uh, the the Mario game for Switch. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, where you where you go into the pipe, and all of a sudden you're playing the original Mario game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, 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 the, the the camera is moving around a building as you go. I, I I don't know if that game was influenced by this game, but I I just like that aspect where you're it's a, it, it essentially turns into a platform game. Um, you're you're going from building to building, jumping from building to building, and uh, you, you have to wait for for Scarecrow to do his big light attack. I don't know what that thing is called. Um, I just thought that was really fun and a, a, a great change of pace for the game. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that's my favorite boss fight. That's the one that sticks out to to me. Yeah, I'll get to the Scarecrow stuff in a little bit. But <laughs> is that a good um, thing or a bad thing? To... <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, you should see. But the my favorite boss fight is actually one of the first in the game. And it's the Bane one, because that one really showcased off how cool the combat system I felt was going to be throughout the game. Because not only fighting Bane, but there's a bunch of Arkham inmates you have to face off. And again, any fight with Bane that you're going to have, you know it's going to be one that deals with a lot of, you know, hand-to-hand combat and, you know, not using your gadgets a little bit but when you fight bane it's it's a fight of strength so you know you're going to be using that combo system a lot but what i loved about it is how you can you know take control of bane and these big other guards to take out the like the bigger enemies you fight you could get on top of them and then use them to take out the smaller enemies that was a lot of fun and then just using your attacks to you know take down bane as one of those first boss fights that you were having it just you know probably because the, the first main one pretty sure it was if i'm remembering right bane was one of the first this you know again one of those moments that set the tone really well for you know other stuff that's going to happen in the game facing off against these iconic batman villains and using you know their abilities and what they're known for in encompassing of a boss fight worked really well i thought with bane was the first one to do that and mixing in with the great combat already established i mean early on in that game 
you're getting familiar with it. You're getting used to taking down a large group of enemies and you throw Bane into the mix, having to take him down and using him to take out some of the enemies as well. It was just a lot of fun. So I, I love that fight. And at the same time too, there's some other great Bane fights. I mean, the one at Arkham Origins was really great. I love that one. That encompass or asshole had a great cutscene <laughs> involved with it as well. So, you know, the Bane fights did get better as the series go along, but there's always something about that one where I just loved it when I was playing it for the first time, just thinking, oh man, this is, you know, a great boss fight, which I know is going to be the first of many, and I can't wait for more. So I've always loved that one. That is one, that the one in front of the elevator while you're waiting for the elevator? I believe so. Okay. Now that you mentioned it, because when I was remembering, I wasn't sure about an elevator, but you might be right, because you're kind of in a small room when you're yeah. fighting Bane. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I remember. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I always like that fight. Like I said, set the tone for, you know, what was to come later on in other boss fights. I just love how unique each one is. Like I said, you know, playing to the strengths of each villain's abilities and what they're known for. So just, yeah, a lot of great stuff. But might as well get into the Scarecrow stuff because next I wanted to talk about favorite moments of the game. And for me, it does not get any better than those Scarecrow sequences oh, in yeah, Arkham Asylum. That just, oh, yeah. to me, takes the game to a whole nother level. Story-wise, visually, with the graphics and how amazing they are, and just showing what I love about Batman so much in a video game, like no game has before, just made me so happy as a diehard Batman fan. And just how, like I said, different it was from the main gameplay and storyline aspect of it. Just threw things for a loop as you were going through it. And I knew Scarecrow was going to be part of the game, but didn't know in what capacity. And the way they used him here was just brilliant. I mean, there's three main Scarecrow sequences that you get through the game, and each one is just better than the last. Well, I should correct that, because <laughs> the first one was actually uh, one of my favorites, but the third one is my favorite. But the first one really got those Scarecrow sequences off of the bang. I mean, you're walking through the morgue, and... You're Batman, you're opening up these body bags and you see Thomas and Martha Kent. Martha Kent. <laughs> Martha Wayne. <laughs> I'm getting the Batman Superman uh, moment mixed up here <laughs> with the Marthas. But Thomas and Martha Wayne in their body bags talking to Bruce. Again, showing his greatest fear of you know, thinking he let his parents down by allowing them to die. And the fact that, you know, a game is showing this. And I shouldn't be surprised because Paul Dini's writing the script and you know how many great, amazing Batman stories he's written and how much he gets the character. So just another great reason to have him be the one behind the story of this game. And he really delivers the goods in these Scarecrow sequence. And just that creepy factor of, you know, it's a dark lit room. You're in the morgue. You're, your dead parents are talking to you. It just captured what Scarecrow's fear toxin uh, can do to Batman and one of the best ways that it's ever been shown in any medium. The way Arkham did it was just fantastic. And you just really felt the effects of how it can mess with your mind as Batman. So that first one, to seeing Batman look at his parents' bodies and them talking to him was just great. And there's that I love how it begins too, where Joker's kind of taunting Batman as he's a dose with a fear toxin saying, what's Batman's greatest fear? And he makes the joke, is it seeing me in a thong? <laughs> just like these funny elements that Joker throws into it before the real creepiness starts, which is done so beautifully. So when I experienced that for the first time, I was just like, wow, man, 
you know how Scarecrow is my second favorite Batman villain after the Joker and displaying that first sequence just made me think, man, they're nailing him in this. And he's really you're not seeing much of Scarecrow just yet. You're just seeing the effects yeah. of the fear toxin. But like you said, each Scarecrow moment, you get to that platform style sequence where you have to take down the Scarecrow by shining the bat signal light on him. Um, it was just lots of fun. And the third one, that's the one where it like, really tripped me out for a bit, where it's like the game restarts on you. You're thinking it's shut off or just resets. And the intro's playing again. It's like, well, what the heck happened? Like, Did my game freeze? Did it reboot? Did I, lost, did I lose all my save progress <laughs> from every bit I've made it so far in the game? Is that all gone now? But you quickly realize things are not what they seem when it's, the intro plays again and it's the opposite. Joker is driving the Batmobile and delivering Batman to Arkham Asylum. And I was like, okay, this is we're in for another great scarecrow sequence here. And then it ends with, you know, Joker shooting you in the face from, you know, that first per- person perspective. And it, just tripping me out as far as, you know, the game kind of messing up on you. But yet, once you realize the scarecrow fear talks and how it's really messing with Batman's psyche during that moment, just brilliantly, brilliantly done. I mean, this is another aspect of the Arkham series that I think not, not only the Arkham games, but other games try to replicate these scarecrow sequences and none of them can match up to how brilliantly they were done in this first Arkham Asylum game. And even in Arkham City, they had the Mad Hatter sequences, which were cool, but didn't quite measure up to the scarecrow ones. And even more recently, the Spider-Man PS4 game where you get poisoned by the scorpion and you kind of have those dreamlike sequences. Um, cool but yet not on that Scarecrow level. <laughs> I, mean, I don't think anything's going to top to what those Scarecrow sequences were able to accomplish. Of not only just throwing you through a loop gameplay-wise and have be, having it be a nice distraction from the main gameplay aspect of it, but just delivering on everything I was expecting for Scarecrow being a part of this game and just as a diehard Batman fan, exploring you know Batman's mind and psyche and what... It makes him do what he does as Batman's all tying back into the murder of his parents and sometimes the guilt he feels with that. It was just done so, so beautifully in all three of them. I didn't touch on it much, but the second one too, where you actually go to Crime Alley and you see Bruce's, you know, parents dead uh, and you see Bruce there. <laughs> I'm trying to, I want to do it justice. I want to forget anything, but I'm trying to remember as it's been a while since I've seen all the scarecrow sequences, but that one where you see, I believe you see a young Bruce Wayne as a kid there. That's what I'm having trouble remembering exactly. If you see a young Bruce looking over the body of his dead parents there, I believe it was. And just, I just remembering that aspect of it being shown in a video game, like never before stood was another thing that I just loved about it. And just how much I appreciated the detail. They were paying attention to the Batman lore and history all encompassed in this one game. And a lot of that, was mainly shown in the Scarecrow sequences. And that's why those are probably my favorite moments in the entire game and probably of the whole Arkham series in general. And it's a series that is known for having a lot of great moments, but those Scarecrow sequences, man, (laughs) they're a thing of beauty for any Batman fan to experience. So Yeah. yeah, that's definitely my favorite moment and just the highlight of a fantastic, fantastic Batman experience. And you know, it's not sh- out of everything in this game for what makes it great and special 10 years later. I think, you know, 
it's none are highlighted more than those scarecrow sequences that show why how special this game could be. I just love those moments to death, and uh, just talking about it makes me want to play it again because obviously <laughs> I was having trouble remembering every single detail about it, and they're so good that I should probably experience it again. So, yeah, I cannot say enough how much I love those scarecrow sequences and what it did for exploring, you know, Batman's mind and just what drives him in a video game. Like ten years ago. Again, we might kind of take it for granted now with all the great Batman Arkham games we had since then. But experiencing that for the first time 10 years ago just blew me away. And just, I remember thinking, I can't believe I'm getting this great Batman content in a video game. This has never happened before. So it definitely left an impression on me. Yeah, I totally forgot about uh, how Scarecrow would uh, mess with your game and make like you restarted it. I, I totally forgot about that. Um, it it, it kind of reminds me of uh, I don't know if you I mean you mentioned it earlier, but um, uh, Metal Gear Solid the first one. Yeah, I don't know if you ever played that one. Um, you, I actually I actually haven't played that one all the way through, but I know what uh, moment you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, you, the the Psycho Manus fight yep. where he would read your uh, memory card, and then you had to plug your controller into the second slot. And yeah, so you read your mind. <laughs> Why do that for some reason? No, <laughs> oh, yeah, I just love how it messes with your mind using your you know video game, <laughs> I guess, system and things you're used to in a game and making you think that it's crashing. All just great stuff. Yeah. Oh man, so good. So that was my favorite moment. I don't know if that was yours as well, Dan. I know you talked about it, how that was your favorite boss fight, but was that your favorite yeah. sequence and moments in the game as well, or is there another one? Yeah, pretty much. And I, I agree with you that it's the one video game thing that sticks out to me, not only with the with this game or the series, but like kind of overall, you know what I mean? I, mm-hmm. I, I still, you know, remember that, remember playing through that. I'm sure I was really irritated at the time <laughs> trying, to, <laughs> trying to get through that, but yeah. Yeah, and like I said, it's a game full with amazing, great moments for any Batman fan, but I think that one takes the cake as far as being the best, and like I said, the one that sticks with you the most. So that's so awesome. Yeah, man, so much to love about Arkham Asylum, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again, this one is my favorite of the entire Arkham series. I know everyone usually picks Arkham City, but there's just something really special about this one. I think it's because of... You know, it being the first one and being the first truly great Batman video game. Like I said before, too, it's one that's not just recognized as a great Batman video game, but just a great video game in general. And I would never in a million years think before Arkham Asylum that a Batman game would be up for Game of the Year and win Game of the Year in some um, online video game sites or in the video game community. So it was just an awesome time to experienced that as a Batman fan and those two year periods 2008 and 2009 were some great times for Batman fans because in 2008 obviously had the Dark Knight movie and just Batman dominating the box office as being the biggest comic book movie ever at the time and then one year later you have Batman being one of the best video games of the year and now recognized as one of the best video games of all time so it's a great one-two punch for Batman in different uh, platforms and uh, media formats with a movie and video game. But as fans, we were eating it all up. So uh, hard to believe it's 10 years old, but I think it holds up great. When I look back on it, whether it's just 
YouTube videos of cutscenes. I think the graphics still look good. I want to replay it again eventually. I got the remastered edition that came out on the Xbox One. They had a bundle deal for Arkham Asylum and Arkham City. And just talking about it with you, Dane, and look, having this retrospective was making me want to play the entire game again. And <laughs> just maybe not get every single detail and every Riddler trophy and puzzle like I did when it first came out, but just to experience that story again with a little bit of updated graphics would be really cool. So I should probably do that. But yeah, yeah. 10 years of Arkham Asylum, it's hard to believe it's that old already, but man, it spawned off. One of the best adaptions of Batman, you can argue. I've seen a lot of people on Twitter that I follow say that, you know, this is one of their favorite Batman iterations ever. So the fact that a Batman video game series was able to do that was just phenomenal. And it all started with Arkham Asylum. So props to Rocksteady for doing the impossible in some ways and delivering a Batman video game like this that is going to stand the test of time and always be remembered as, you know, a, just a great Batman experience. Yeah, you see, I, I have a hard time um, picking a favorite Arkham game. Because the first one, yeah, everything that you said, right? Mm-hmm. The second one, I mean, uh, pl- playing the first one, right? It's like, I wish I could go around Gotham. You know, and I wish I kind of wasn't stuck in Arkham Asylum. Uh, they they do make it big, but it still feels claustrophobic, right? And then Arkham City comes out, and yeah, like you get the not the whole city, a portion of the city, right? Mm-hmm. And you're going from rooftop to rooftop to rooftop, and it, there's there's a changing. Uh, setting right there's a change of setting when you go from place to place to place right it's it's not just a long corridor you know yeah (laughs) or a you know boiler room or whatever right um so yeah arkham city did that but um the the flying from i mean not flying the 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 bad grappling from building to building. Or the gliding. Slash gliding, yeah. <laughs> slash gliding is... Um, it's it, it gets old after a while, and it's like, oh, man, I gotta, I gotta glide and bad grapple all the way over there, you know? Sort of becomes that. Um, and then you kind of wish... You know what? I wish there was the Batmobile, right? And then so Arkham Knight comes out, and it's like, okay, we get the Batmobile, but the city doesn't feel the same. So I, I just don't know which one. To, I have a hard time picking one. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, that's what makes it a great trilogy too. Each one yeah. has their own added element to it that improves on what came before. But yeah, it's still the ones that came previously were still great experiences too. And I, Arkham Origins sometimes gets forgotten about the Arkham series. That's still a very solid game, too. Even though it wasn't developed by Rocksteady, there were some great moments in there as well. So that yeah. one's kind of like the black sheep of the Arkham series. But Oh, excuse me. Sorry. Arkham Knight, I meant. Did, did you say Arkham Knight or did you say Arkham Origins? I, I think you, I I think you said Arkham Knight. 
Oh, I'm just okay. referring to Origins as one that yeah, kind of yeah. gets overlooked. <laughs> so, you know why I overlooked it, Tim? Yes, we do. <laughs> the the one Arkham game you still haven't finished yet, Dave. <laughs> yeah, nope. I still haven't finished it. Will not finish it. Was totally let down by that glitch. That bug. <laughs> well, that's what you get for playing it on a PC and not on a console yeah. like you know yeah. you should have. <laughs> so stupid. What? Why did I get? What? Why did I do that? Dude? Yeah, why did you do that, Dean? I forget the reason. I, I don't <laughs> even remember. The podcast. I, I think I might have. I think I might have been over PlayStation Four, and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna get this on computer. I'm gonna get this on PC. Well, that was before PlayStation Four even came out. Yeah. Really? Yeah, it came I, on PS3 and Xbox 360. Oh. Hmm. Well, did you trade in your PS3 or something and <laughs> not have it? But. You yeah, still wanted to play it. The PC was your only option. I don't know. I have no idea why I bought it on, on PC. Maybe it was on sale, or maybe, yeah, I have no idea. And look where that got you. <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to remember back. Uh, All the way back to 2013, six yeah, years ago. Six years ago. Yeah, pretty soon it's going to be the 10 year anniversary of. Arkham uh, Origins. <laughs> well, first you gotta get Arkham City, then we'll get to Origins. Yeah, but... yeah. The Arkham Origins. Uh, when we eventually do that for the, our ten year for the ten year anniversary, I will not be commenting on anything <laughs> in a game. Or how about the ten year anniversary should be when you finally beat the game? That's you finally go back to it and you finish it. I don't even think it's available on PlayStation Four. Yeah, I'm not sure if it is. Like the. Arkham City and Arkham Asylum yeah. two pack. Or it might be, be uh might be one of the streaming services things. Maybe. You know, yeah. Where it's only available on let me see. Nope, it didn't. Man, let's see, like I said, it's treated as the black sheep of the Arkham series, which it shouldn't be. Yeah, yeah it never happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's happened for anyone who finished the game, I'll say that. Yeah. <laughs> WB Games, Montreal. And just Dane's crappy PC, that's what it is. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I don't think it was their fault. I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's our look back at 10 years of Arkham Asylum. So yeah, fun times looking back about that era of Batman and video games and what a different time it was and how different things are now where you expect a yeah. Batman video game to be good. So yeah. Happy 10-year anniversary to Arkham Asylum and everyone at Rocksteady for doing what, at the time, I thought no video game studio could do. So <laughs> you deserve all the props you get on this 10-year anniversary. Um, so yeah, that's our future topic for this episode. And uh, now we can move on to our news and discussion topics. Um, you know what? I'm really curious, Tim, about the second one. Ah, okay. Yeah. We'll get to that. Uh, that is the Titans Season 2 premiere review. And uh, I would like to hear your thoughts. Well, as a recording this episode, the premiere just happened yesterday, Friday, September 6th. And like I said a few episodes ago, I finally watched all the Titans. I binged it. Um, it was nice having all the episodes available, but now I'm going to have to wait like everyone else from week to week, experience it as they come on the DC Universe app. And I'm not sure if I mentioned this when I gave my overall thoughts on Titans as the first season I was watching it, but 
Um, the first season ended on a cliffhanger, which felt like the season wasn't over. You could tell that there was should have been one more episode, and that was the case. They cut the season short by one episode. So technically, the Titans season two premiere is really the season one finale. And after watching the episode, it just drove home the point even further how they really should have just had this episode end season one and not have it end on a cliffhanger, um, which they said was a creative decision. They wanted to end the first season on a cliffhanger, but it wasn't much of a cliffhanger because it's uh, Dick Grayson, you know, being coming under the control of Trigun after going through this dream sequence of trying of having to take down Batman and end up killing him, him give Dick giving into the darkness and thus, once he comes out of that dream, he's now under control of Trigon. And that's how the first season ends. And you know that's not going to be Dick's ultimate fate in Titans. He's going to come out of it. So it wasn't quite the major cliffhanger where I felt, oh, it's going to get fans wondering and talking about uh, and anticipating the second season to begin because you know he's going to come out of it. So they should have just had this episode be the season one finale. Having said that, though, I felt it was a very solid episode. And as the episode begins... You see Dick under the control of Trigon, and but the rest of the Titans, like Starfire, um, Medhawk, and Dove, get the help of Jason Todd. They assist her with Starfire and Donna Troy to get into uh, Trigon's house with Raven and her mother and Beast Boy to save to save them. And as they enter and make their way in, we see them go through what Dick had to go through in the season one finale of them giving into their own darkness and coming under the control of Trigon. And all that was cool seeing, you know what these characters would do if pushed to the limits and gave into their dark side and end up taking a life. And the coolest one was Jason Todd's where we see a pretty cool fight sequence of him fighting Dick, both in the Robin costumes, which was pretty cool to see. So everyone's under the control of Trigon and uh, Raven, the way Trigon can really take control of his power is he has to break um, his daughter's heart, literally. So he has to, make Raven lose something she loves, which is, you know, her new family and the Titans. And the one that uh, comes to her breaking point is when Trigun has all the Titans take out Beast Boy and pretty much beat him to the brink of death. And once that happens, Trigun rips out (laughs) Raven's heart and crushes it and turns it into the diamond that we know Raven has on her forehead. And he puts that over her. But um, Beast Boy is able to reach into Raven's, the part that's still there, have her come out of it and in turn raven gets into dick's head and brings him out of the darkness as well and so all that stuff was good but the way the the trigon story ended with them defeating trigon was very anticlimactic i mean all basically trigon does and he does transform into his monster form and we just see him walk walk outside everything every step he takes turns the grass into you know dirt like life gets taken away at every step he takes and he's just walking down the the yard, ready to put in motion his plan. He just stands there for a while. Then Raven comes out, tells her father that, you know, she's not a part of them now. She has a new family and just puts him into that diamond in her forehead with no trouble at all. It just felt very anticlimactic. There wasn't a fight sequence. There wasn't a showdown between uh, the Titans and Trigon. Uh, Raven didn't have any problem getting him tra- uh, trapped into that diamond. So it just all happened very quickly. And it seemed like they had to rush that ending a little bit because they had to set up uh, the second season premiere because the like last third of the episode is where the new stuff from season two starts kicking in. And that stuff was great as well. So 
I mean, even though the Trigon story felt anticlimactic in how it ended, the lead up to that was good. And what came after that was good because, man, I can't wait for the real story arc of season two to begin because we're getting Deathstroke and the, he just looks awesome. <laughs> and the way they're bringing him back um, into the fold because he sees uh, the Titans on the news. Jason Todd <laughs> just runs into the camera and says, the Titans are back. And that gets Deathstroke's attention. He's someone just living out in the woods in his cabin. But seeing that the Titans are back is going to put him back into being Deathstroke again. And we see him go back to his house and with his always go into a bunker with his weapons and the classic Deathstroke armor just looks so cool. So I just love one of the things I love about the show is how the, so much of the DC lore and history has been established here. We know that Deathstroke has a history with the Titans previously and now he's going to be back and join up or fight against uh, this new iteration of the Titans. And that's where, you know, the hero's side of things gets going in season two as we see Dick go see Bruce, which, you know, he had a presence in season one, but they didn't have an actor to portray him. So he was just kind of in the shadows and in the background. But now we know he's being played by Ian Glenn from Game of Thrones, Sir Jorah Mormont. And I got to say, one of my worries going into it was not that I don't think Jorah or see, I'm already calling him Jorah, not that. Ian Glenn will do a good job playing Bruce Wayne, but it'll be hard to separate him as Jorah Mormont. And that was kind of the case. It just felt like I was watching uh, Jorah talk to Dick Grayson here. And again, it's not any fault of Ian Glenn. It's just, you know, just he's not doing anything particularly different from his portrayal of Bruce than Sir Jorah. So (laughs) it felt a little weird. I'm not going to say he's bad as Bruce Wayne, but it's kind of hard to separate the two characters for me (laughs) at this point. But it was cool to have Bruce actually be in an episode. And the conversation he has with Dick at Wayne Manor, I thought was really, really cool just to kind of see Dick reconcile his relationship with Bruce here. Kind of tell him that he's not all to blame for you know why Dick left and the kind of the darkness he's dealing with and letting that go and a little, being a little appreciative to what uh, how Bruce raised him and trained him. So that was some cool stuff. And he goes to ask Bruce you know, about you know, the San Francisco location to get the Titan started. And Bruce tells them, you know, under one condition, but we don't know what that condition is yet. And the episode ends with Dick taking Jason Todd, uh, Raven and Beast Boy to the headquarters in San Francisco, which was the previous I guess, location of the Titans. And we just see Jason Todd and Beast Boy be in awe of being in the Titans headquarters. There's this great moment where Beast Boy goes into this room that held uh, the costumes for all the characters. And you see uh, Robin's, you see actually Rob, it's a, how it was shot. You see the characters turn around. It seems like they're looking at Beast Boy in full costume. So you see Robin, you see Wonder Girl, you see Hawk and Dove, but it's all in Beast Boy's head, just imagining what it's like seeing these Titan heroes uh, be in this room and looking at them. So that was a cool moment to see everyone in their full costumes, knowing that we are going to see that for real in later episodes. So the episode ends with Dick, you know, getting these groups of young heroes back together as far as establishing a new Titans team. And we they don't know it yet, but they're going to be going up against Deathstroke, and that's going to be awesome. So um, season the season two premiere slash season one finale, overall good, but uh, the Trigon story ended, you know, kind of on a whimper. <laughs> it just felt very anticlimactic. But season two... I just can't wait for that story arc to begin because it looks like they're setting up some cool stuff. So kind of a mixed bag, but overall I thought it was good. It did its job as far as getting me excited for what's to come. They, But they really should have just let this episode be the season one finale 
and kind of have a more definitive end to that Trigon story and then just have a full episode dedicated to getting the season two story arc kicked off. So the good thing, though, is that season two is a few episodes longer than season one. So hopefully the fact that technically this first episode of season two uh, was more of a season one end cap doesn't affect where season two feels shorter at all, because since there's a few more episodes, it probably should feel the same length. So overall, I enjoyed it, but I just can't wait to see future episodes. And like I said at the beginning, it's going to be hard waiting week for week now after I binge the whole first season. So yeah, I'm still enjoying the heck out of Titans and it just looks to be getting even better this season. I don't understand why they do that. They cut the, sh- the, the, the season short. Yeah. It's just, they said, I think there's more to it, but like I said, they said it was for creative reasons. They wanted to end it on that cliffhanger, but I'm not sure if it had something else to do with, you know, all that stuff that was going on with the DC Universe app as far as, you know, Swamp Thing getting canceled and that season getting cut short, maybe not knowing for certain at the time Titans future, but I don't know. Whatever the reason was, it wasn't the right one. <laughs> Wait, hold on, Tim. I'll be right back. Okay. Okay, sorry about that. No problem. Uh, we, and you can leave this in because uh, uh, we got a new cat, right? Oh, nice. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, because we had to put one of our cats to sleep. Oh, man, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, Always hate to hear yeah, that. Well, yeah, well, when we had our our three cats, you know, and then we had to put one down, we we thought that we would replace her. Um, you know, but, 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 like, it has to be somebody, or it has to be, like, a a, a cat that you wouldn't really adopt that didn't get adopted, and we did. We found um, uh, two sisters. Um, they loved each other. They <laughs> played, played, you know, together and stuff. Uh, nobody really wants to adopt two cats, right? You just want one. <laughs> and so we ended up adopting them, and then uh, I'd say, like, about two and a half weeks ago uh we come home and one of them can't walk um and so we take we, we take her to the vet we thought that she broke she had she broke her leg because you know she she was really wild she was jumping all over the place we thought she broke her legs so we took her in apparently she had a, a heart defect oh, right yeah she had a heart defect and it created a blood clot that got lodged in her spot in, in the yeah in her spine and you know e- even if we did do the surgery it's a it's a quality of life thing you know it, it, it doesn't mean that she would be able to walk again be able to use her back legs um, so we decided to put her down uh, yeah. to put her to sleep uh, she she was four months old uh, which, which was the hard thing. That's why I kind of didn't want to talk about it. Sure, yeah. When it happened, um, you know, it was hard on me. It was hard on my girlfriend. So we got a new we we got a new cat because young cats they love to play with each other, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they they need somebody to play with yeah. uh, around their age, and so we got another cat. <laughs> Again, a hard luck case. Um, the the lady we got her from. Uh, him from sorry um, uh, their her two cats weren't getting 
weren't, weren't getting along with him, so we decided to take him. And um, r- right now, the two young ones are kind of in that period where it's like, I want to play with you, but my instinct is to hiss at you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? Not getting along together yeah. right away. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I just had to go check on him. I got you. But anyway. Well, yeah. Sorry. Always bum- like I said, it bums me out when you have to hear someone put down a pet, but. Yeah. Always good to know that when you take on another animal, like I said, it's another hard luck, hard luck case, but you're able to give it a good life in a new home. Should be good. So, yeah, congratulations it, on the new cat. Yeah, it was just really hard, you know, because she was so young. Yeah, uh, she was only four months. You know, she, her and her sister really like to play together and stuff. And hopefully, now they get over this hissing thing. And they can just be friends. I I, I know you guys want to play with you. It's, it's like I know you guys want to play with each other. Just play with each other. And never mind the hissing. Yeah. I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Um. But anyway, uh, let's uh talk about the uh the, the Joker trailer. <laughs> it still looks good, Tim. It still looks good and. Boy, from what we're hearing, it sounds like it's better than good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it sounds really like this is an all timer here. Yeah. Yeah. Getting but, really good reviews. People are saying it's Oscar worthy. Yeah. I do feel torn, though, Tim. Not going to lie. Uh, you know, it's getting all these great reviews, and I'm really excited to see it. And, uh, you know, I can't. I, I can't. Really, I can't wait to see. I can't wait till October fourth. Is it? It's like the beginning of October. I believe it's October. Yeah, you're right. The fourth. Fourth, right? Uh, but I did see on Twitter that people are having a problem with it. Um, yeah, and There's I, some I, controversy. <laughs> yeah, you know, I can't. I can't remember the the person's name, but uh, I did read what uh, somebody said, and she was saying how. You know, it, it 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 could be controversial because, you know, it's a sympathetic portrayal of somebody that's crazy. Not not only somebody that's crazy, but somebody that wants to do harm to people that picked on him or women or whoever, right? And I understand that. So I'm kind of torn, you know. It's like I want to see this movie. I'm excited for this movie. But on the same – on the same – you know, thing is like, ah, uh, but but it does have this connotation, you know. Mm, yeah, I get that. But at the same time, too, this is the Joker we're talking about here. We kind of know that. <laughs> not, he's not a good person. He's going to do some horrible things in this movie. And I get the whole thing about, you know, making you feel sympathetic for him. But at the same time, I kind of feel, and this is a point I've seen for people who are raving about it, where you do feel sympathetic for him at the beginning when you see what Arthur Fleck has to go through, but by the time he does what he does as a Joker, and I don't know what, but I'm hearing he does some pretty bad stuff that makes you feel uncomfortable. And that's, that's the point of it all. He's supposed to see the downfall and not really feel bad for him once he does do that, where you view him as, you know, the horrible person that the Joker is. And, you know, I'm just taking it in as a, just a big character breakdown and character study of a possible reason of why the joker becomes the joker in this case and like i said before and i said it again when i saw the trailer 
I'm going into this movie, leaving behind everything I know about the Joker and just ready to take in this new take and what the story they're going to tell behind the origins of the Joker in this movie. And I know it's going to be something totally different. And let's just get that from the trailer. I got to be honest. I mean, the trailer looks really good. But when I saw it for the first time, I was watching it at work and I had the volume real low. So I didn't hear the dialogue (laughs) much at all. But once I saw it when I got home and with the sound and more of Joaquin Phoenix's performance, I mean, I just get more sold on it. He's getting rave reviews for his performance. And you could just tell in this trailer for what he's doing with it. I mean, I get that sympathetic aspect because in the beginning of the trailer, when the first scene of it is you see him trying, you know, having some fun with a little boy on the on a bus. And I think the beginning of it, you're going to see someone who just wants to make people happy and make people smile that's that's his goal obviously he's a comedian and obviously he doesn't have much success with it and there's bad things are going to happen to him bad thing after bad thing over the course of the movie till he has a breaking point and that's where we're going to see him become the joker so it's something you know it's not entirely new we've seen some stuff like that with the joke already in the killing joke um, with someone who's a comedian down on his luck and just that whole one bad day aspect but it looks like this joker is going to have several bad days so, yeah, I mean, that's just the point of the movie. I think it's up to the personal viewer to, you know, take in and view it how they want to as far as feeling sympathetic or not sympathetic for him or whatsoever. And but that's the story they're trying to tell here of, you know, what someone can do if driven to this um, to this breaking point that he will have. And it's, you know, just going to be a look at that aspect of the character of the Joker in that way. So, and you know. I, there's going to be controversy. You knew that you kind of heard the rumblings for that from the reviews and certain reactions. So I guess that's to be expected now. But at the same time, too, I don't think it's something totally different that they're going to do with the Joker that's going to make it, you know, feel like something totally unexpected that we can't believe uh, they're doing this or showing him in this way. I'm expecting, you know, a different take on him. But uh, at the same time, as we know, he's going to do probably some horrible things. It sh- maybe shouldn't be taken as too different as what we've seen Joker do in other stories. We're just going to see how he got there. And yeah, I'm fascinated by it too. I mean, I'm really anxious to see this take on the Joker and how Walking Phoenix's portrayal is going to be. Are you really going to feel that sympathetic for him, even as he is the Joker? Or are you going to be able to switch and really hate him as you should and not be someone who's rooting for a character who's probably going to do horrible things and such, I guess another reason that's making it maybe feel a little more controversial, maybe for how grounded and realistic it feels as far as being someone, you know, toning down that comic book aspect of the Joker in certain ways in this movie, obviously, you know, he's putting the makeup on himself. Uh, It does feel more like a lived in real world aspect that this movie is going to have. So maybe that's playing a part in it too, as far as people thinking they shouldn't be glorifying a character like this, where it's possible that someone could really do that in our own world as well. But I'm not so sure there are glorifying it. I mean, I think they're just telling a story here of how, you know, a character like this, you know, who started off good and just wanted to, you know, get through life being a comedian and making people happy could have such a downfall and become, you know, one of the notorious villains of our time in the Joker. So again, I'm, I'm just fascinated with it. I can't wait to see it either and to see this new portrayal. I think it's going to be something different. And now with all these rave reviews and of Joaquin Phoenix's performance in the movie in general, 
Um, it's going to see the one bad aspect of it is maybe, you know, the overhype for it might be beginning now and kind of temper expectations a little bit. Um, so, but I was blown away by these great reviews. I mean, I was expecting good reviews because there was some buzz around the film even before uh, the screening started. The fact that I was getting special screenings at like the film festivals and all that were pointing to how, you know, it looks like they might have something good here, but I wasn't expecting like a 10 out of 10 from IGN or five out of five from different uh, media outlets and just glowing reviews from a lot of uh, online critics that, you know, don't necessarily give high praise to the comic book movies as much as the Joker has been receiving. I mean, it does happen, but it is rare when it does. And yeah, it's, it's just awesome to see. I just hope it lives up to the hype and we get uh, a Joker story that ends up becoming a classic with a, another great portrayal of the character, which is going to be something because we all know about Heath Ledger's legendary Oscar winning performance. And the fact that we might get another one that's not, a, that's on that level. You know, I don't want to, do too much comparisons on it just yet since we haven't seen the movie but the fact that we could have two iconic joker performances is just something really cool <laughs> to get as batman fans so like you dane i can't wait to see it on october 4th and just get my own reaction for it and see uh, how i feel about it once i see the movie yeah hopefully i mean i mean that's the thing really like I'll, hopefully we don't get too overhyped for it and then people are expecting something different you know like mm. a avengers type movie and then yeah, this <laughs> totally different from that like i'm going into not expecting any i'm sure there's gonna be a few but any like comic book or batman references at all but we know thomas wayne's in it he actually punches arthur yeah. slash joker in this trailer i mean he gets punched a lot in these trailers we've got <laughs> probably throughout the course of the movie yeah so i mean i'm just going into it expecting just a story being told about a character who you know has this breakdown and seeing what he goes through in life how someone like this can become the joker that um we know from batman stories even though batman's not going to play a big obviously a big role in this that could be my one little nitpick where you know it's such a great portrayal of the joker and it's a great story that's told about him that you know you're going to want to see a batman Conf confront this joker especially if he does all these horrible things you're going to want to see a batman take him down and you know bring this the joker to justice but doesn't look like that's going to be the case because it does sound like it's going to be a one and done and obviously this joker is going to be so much older <laughs> than bruce wayne by the time he becomes batman where batman could probably take him out pretty easily <laughs> if they come to blows so uh we'll see but i have to leave that aside and just go in um to hopefully get a, a great story being told about joker without batman yeah i think it was jim lee who said um uh yeah this has nothing to do with the comics yeah so like i'm not even yeah. that's the one thing if you're going in seeing all these rave reviews thinking in a great like a great comic book iteration of the joker i think you gotta let that go there might be a few nods and references that you could call be callbacks on and pick up as you're watching it but you just gotta leave all that behind as you're seeing this movie that there just look to be something totally different where it just happens to have the Joker name and the Joker look to it. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking about what you said, Tim. Like, uh, I, I, I wish, like, when the, when the Blu-ray comes out that they could quote you. <laughs> and, like, the figure, when you said, um, he, he seems to get punched in the face a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I mean, you see Thomas Wayne punch him. You see him get hit by his uh, uh, sign that he was holding. <laughs> as yeah. He's running to the alley. These like, kids just whack him with it. And I'm sure there's going to be other instances where we see him get punched in the face. So <laughs> I guess that could be like the drinking game for the movie. How many times this version <laughs> of the Joker gets punched in the face. <laughs> Another thing too, Joaquin Phoenix's Joker laugh sounds really good. It's that creepy, playful laugh <laughs> that he's bringing to this Joker. I mean, that moment where you just see him walking down a hallway without makeup, it's just Arthur Fleck and he just laughs for no reason. And, just yeah, and then he that... stops. And yeah. then he just stops, which is oh, creepy. <laughs> yep. So, uh, yeah, all signs point to, at least depending on your view on it, but the reviews we're yeah. seeing for it, man, it's, you know, sounds like we could be in for something special. So hopefully that's the case when we see it and we do our episode review for it once we get into October. Yeah. Uh, but now we can move on to our comic book reviews on this episode. Um, we are reviewing Detective Comics number 1010, uh, Batman <laughs> TMNT number five. And Doomsday Clock number 11. And our rating scale for this episode is... Um, hmm, how many how about, names... <laughs> go ahead. No, you go first. <laughs> I, I was going to say... Um, how many Lord of the Rings names Dane can get wrong? <laughs> I like that one. I was going to also go with or suggest uh, how many times Joker will get punched in the face in this movie. Oh. <laughs> you know, let's do yours then. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Also, too, spoiler warning for oh, these comic book reviews. Right. Spoiler warning. If you haven't read your books, you might want to pause it right here and then come back after you've done that. Yes, because there's a lot going on. In these issues, well, especially yeah. especially Doomsday Clock, which I'll get to. But first up, Detective Comics one thousand and ten, or like you said, day ten ten. <laughs> but um, this is continuing off the story where Bruce and a bunch of other wealthy Gotham businessmen and women get their plane wrecked and crash on an island. It looks like while all being taken hostage by a dead shot. So um, this story picks up right after that, where the plane crashed on this island somewhere in the Pacific. And it starts with Bruce Wayne being rescued by these two um, inhabitants of this island. And right off the bat, I said it on our, my review for the previous issue, I just like the story, where the story is going and how different it is. It's you know something that you don't see too often in Batman stories, especially now in the current Batman comics and what Batman's going through and other story arcs like Tom King's Batman and uh, the last night from the last night on Earth from Scott Snyder, Doomsday Clock, which I'll get to. So this is just kind of a nice self-contained um, story that doesn't have you know big, at least I don't think so, consequences moving forward for the character. But yet it's just an entertaining you know self-contained story that I'm liking a lot. That's different. So pretty much this issue is Bruce being rescued by these two, like I said, inhabitants of this island, but. They're actually old World War II uh, war veterans who got stranded on this island during the war. You got one from Japan and one from the U.S. who obviously were enemies, but since they got stuck on this island together, they had to work together and learn to survive. And they obviously have survived for many years on this island. And it reminded me a little bit of, did you see the Kong Skull Island movie, Dane? No, I haven't. Okay. Uh, the, the reviews weren't too good for that one, right? Uh, I liked it. It was 
it was entertaining for a you know a monster movie with you know yeah. had characters that didn't get on my nerves and great monster action sequences. So mm-hmm. I liked it a lot. Is but, it uh, Brie Larson in that one? Uh huh. Yeah, and Tom Hiddleston. Yeah. So you had Captain Marvel and Loki in it. But Sam Jackson, right? Oh yeah, and Sam Jackson. Yeah, yeah. he was kind of the villain of the movie. Oh. I see. But uh, John C. Riley was in it, and his character um, was someone who was trapped on Kong Skull Island because him and another Japanese soldier fought each other and got, you know, their planes crashed on an island here, and they had to learn to survive on this island and, you know, enemies becoming friends. And so these two characters reminded me of that bit from Kong Skull Island. Um, so they take in Bruce, trying to nurse him back to health, and they do. And I just like the interaction that they had because, you know, they're comparing Bruce to someone from Flash Gordon movie because of his plane and, you know, calling back to these old movies that they're only familiar with since, you know, being from the 30s and 40s and not knowing what's going on in the outside world, being stuck on this island. And I like how uh, the American soldier asked Bruce, hey, you got to catch me up on, you know, the last uh, 75 years of World Series winners. <laughs> and, of course, Bruce had to tell him, well, the Yankees won quite a few times. So <laughs> Did they, but, Tim? Did they oh, really? They, they did since uh, 1946, which is what the which Bruce says uh, yeah. was. I think the year he's starting from, letting him know of how many World Series uh, were won by the Yankees during that time. So they've won the most since then. Well, the A's have four too in that time. <laughs> All right. <laughs> But uh, the man was more curious about the Detroit Tigers. So, <laughs> uh, so I guess Bruce knows his. Bruce knows his baseball, though, because he goes, they've won a couple, and the last was in 1984, which is accurate. So I like that yeah. Bruce keeps up with his baseball teams. <laughs> <laughs> so like interactions like that were fun to see Bruce have, which you don't get to see him talk baseball too much. So I like that aspect of it. And then the other side of this uh, story is Deadshot actually kind of being a hero in a way, getting all the uh, people who are in the hot, in, or he's wanted to take them as hostages, but now he has to rescue them from the plane wreckage and make sure they're all healthy and kind of have to protect them because uh, there's a wild panther that comes in and it's about to attack. Deadshot has to shoot it. He gets some food for him, gets the fire going, but yet still not wanting to be like he's their protector because he makes threats to them. He tells them not to you know do anything stupid or try to take him out or also shoot him, but yet he's still you know, kind of trying and protecting these people and making sure they're okay while still trying to get his payday by getting Bruce back. So it was kind of fun to see him be that anti-hero sort of way in the story. But it turns out that Panther that he shoots um, goes back to the camp where Bruce and these two soldiers were at. And he's bleeding almost, you know, he's passes out, almost ready to die. And there's actually, and this Panther ends up pretty much being one a pet that these two soldiers have. They made friends with the animals and the wildlife here. And his name is Tanaka, which is another Yankee connection as the Yankee pitcher Masahiro Tanaka. <laughs> from... Oh my God, Tim. So there's a lot of Yankee stuff I could draw from this issue. Maybe that's why I like it so much. So <laughs> there, there, there wasn't a, Oh, there's this guy, uh, Dennis Eckersley, you know, <laughs> Hall of Fame closer. No, nothing like that. Uh, no Giambi references or, you know, Mark uh, Mulder, Barry Zito, <laughs> something like that. Not even a Jason Isringhausen, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> no. Sorry, How Dave. dare they? How dare they? <laughs> uh, so once they see this panther has been shot, uh, Bruce you know, offers his help to fix him back up, but he knows actually who did this because they can't figure out how can he you know, have this big of a wound, and Bruce knows it's, it's a bullet wound from Deadshot's blaster. So 
Bruce realizes he still has to save those uh, businessmen and women from the plane. And so he makes, you know, ask, or he asks those two soldiers from some equipment and he makes a makeshift Batman costume, which actually looks more like Black Panther <laughs> when I first saw it in the shadows. Um, so he goes to take on Deadshot with, you know, a makeshift cow, some goggles to hide his face, but uh, he doesn't quite cover his mask like the normal Batman cow would, but he makes do. It still looks pretty good. It <laughs> gets the point across that you know it's Batman. So uh, he goes to attack Deadshot, but doesn't have much success. He gets him away from the hostages, and Bruce actually sees him. But um, once he, uh, once Deadshot sees him, he kind of makes the threat that, you know, they aren't really, you know, prisoners anymore. They're actually bait to lure Bruce out. So the story ends with Bruce running to the hostages, but he's in Deadshot sights. So looks like they're going to have another confrontation and Deadshot kind of be the anti-hero isn't going to last very long. <laughs> he's going to become the enemy, I imagine, pretty quickly. So, yeah, it's a fun issue. Like I said, I love the dialogue between the characters, Batman and those two soldiers, Deadshot and the hostages. Just some fun stuff and something different that's going on in the Batman comics right now. So I liked it a lot. I'm going to go ahead and give this one a four out of five times the Joker will get punched in his upcoming movie. So next up, we have Batman and TMNT number three, issue five. Uh, the penultimate issue to the TMNT series by James Tynan, which I'm sad is going to end. I just got one more. <laughs> but again, it continues to make me happy as a Batman and Turtle fan. And the last issue ended with the Joker getting his memory back and launching a full-blown attack <laughs> on Batman and the Turtles. And this is where this issue picks up right on with the action as we see Batman and the Turtles taking down a bunch of Joker's robots and just some cool action sequences. And how I said in the last issue, how it was cool to see Batman, the Turtles, and Shredder team up. We didn't actually see them in action. And this issue, we get it. Batman with the Turtles, Shredder with the Turtles, Shredder working with Splinter. Just this team up that you would, would never expect to see in a million years. And it was just really fun to see play out in this issue. Like I said, with some cool panels showing the action with Shredder, Splinter, the Turtles, and Batman. All this working together. Just I was eating it up as a fan of both. But then um, Joker says something to Batman that startles him he makes a reference to the death of jason todd by you know mentioning a crowbar and the whole family and this is part of batman's memory that hasn't returned yet and once joker says that he remembers the death of jason and he realizes there's still something wrong with his memory and his life that doesn't feel right and he just leaves the battle he apologizes to the turtle saying he has to, there's something he has to do and he knows that they can carry on the fight and make their way to uh krang's uh ultra technodrome the source of all this uh, madness going on in their universe. So the turtles are able to make it inside. And this is where we get some more geekiness that I ate up where before the original Raphael met up with the turtles in the beginning of the story. But now that the uh, original, or I should say our current turtles make their way into the Technodrome, they free the prime turtles, which of course is the original Mirage Comics 1984 black and white turtles. So not only do we just get to see Raphael, we get to see all four of the original black and white turtles interact with the current comic turtles and then them forming a plan. It was just really cool to see the interaction. And it's something that we've seen before in other turtles media. The Turtles Forever movie 
where the 2003 animated series had their special where they met up with the 1987 Turtles. And at the end of that story, they meet up with the original comics Turtles as well. So it's not something entirely entirely new, but I love seeing it every time it happens because I just love the respect they show to the original Turtles whenever they do um, come into a story and then they're in black and white and have their hard personalities that they're known for. So just cool stuff. And then we see what Batman went off to. He actually goes to the Bat Signal and Splinter and Alfred actually follow him. Um, both view Batman as their son in this, you know, bizarre timeline. And they let him know that he was never alone. They're always there for him. And Batman realizes, you know, I know that's why I'm here now. I know Batman has never just been my own fight. And this is where he gets his pretty much his full memories back, where he remembers the Bat family, Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, Tim Drake, Damien, Barbara, they all show up. And that Bat signal obviously triggers their memories if they didn't have them yet in this new timeline. And they all come to join Batman on the GCPD rooftop with the bat signal in full costume, ready to infiltrate Krang's ultra technodrome and then join up with the eight turtles now and the prime Batman who was also trapped there. So the issue ends with them all going, going to attack Krang, Krang. And it's this great splash page of just, like I said, eight turtles, two Batman, the bat family all about to do battle with, Krang being within the anti-monitors robot body. So the final showdown is about to come, but there's a lot of geek out moments in this issue that I continue to have with this story. So really enjoyed this one as well. I'm going to also give this one four out of five times the Joker get punched in his own movie. And then we get to the big one, Doomsday Clock number 11. And this is also the penultimate issue of Doomsday Clock. You know, it's... (laughs) Been a long time coming as the series has seen delays, but I always say it's worth it. Just not only the beautiful art, but, you know, just the consistency of the storytelling and the layout, the beautiful art by Gary Frank. It just wouldn't want it any other way. I'd rather have it delayed and have it be, you know, inconsistent with the different artists on board. So as much as I hate to see these delays, it's uh, worth it in the end. And this issue is setting up the big final confrontation between Dr. Manhattan and Superman. And this issue was a lot of exposition and a lot of story explaining, kind of recapping stuff as well. So I will say not the most exciting issue of Doomsday Clock, but one that did a good job of setting up the tension and what's going to be hopefully an epic showdown between Superman and Dr. Manhattan. Not, you know, just in a fist fight sort of way, because Jeff Johnson said that that's not going to be the point of this crossover is, you know, kind of be a battle of ideals here. And I think they're doing a good job of setting that up. So the issue begins where, you know, the DC universe here is just at an all time low. Things are just chaotic and crazy everywhere. It's pretty much becoming the bleak, dark Watchmen universe. The world is on the brink of nuclear war. And I love how the cover of Doomsday Clock 11 is Batman reaching for the hand of someone to launch some nuclear missiles. And the first panel, when you open the book, is that same uh, artwork of the cover of Batman reaching for the hand of some a soldier about to launch some nuclear missiles. And there's just something real cool about Batman stopping a nuclear strike um, on the U.S. side where they feel so you know, unprotected now without Superman and the Justice League. You got tensions with Russia and their metahumans uh, because of the Superman firestorm incident. So things are going crazy. The doomsday clock is one minute from midnight. And so things are bleak everywhere. And there's 
game wars in Gotham. There's weather anomalies. The Justice League is nowhere to be found, like I said, because of their battle on Mars with Dr. Manhattan. Superman is barely just waking up from his coma from his from that explosion he had with Firestorm. So, yeah, things aren't looking good. And But the course of the story is kind of being told, like I said, a lot of exposition from Lex Luthor and Ozymandias kind of explaining um, their sides of things of what's going on. Luthor explains to Lois, you know, how he's kind of figured out uh, the essence or the energy of what caused rebirth, which we know is Dr. Manhattan. And we get the reveal that Luthor is actually there when Barry and Wally met during the rebirth event, that rebirth special issue where Barry remembers Wally and he says that now iconic line, how could I ever forget you? Luthor was there to witness that. And he says, you know, that wasn't the source of the anomaly, but it was actually, you know, what was lying there. And it was a photograph. And it's that famous photograph of Dr. Manhattan as a normal man, as John and with his wife at the fair. And that there's that, you know, we know that photo from Watchmen and Luthor sees that. But the big thing about it is that wasn't the only photo. He has this base where, you know, supposed to have the greatest secrets of the universe, ones that aren't solved. And he's saying this is the greatest secret of them all. And in this lab, this room, there's tons of photos of that one photo, but there's tons of them. And Luthor realizes that they're all spaced out through different eras of time, like breadcrumbs that Dr. Manhattan has been leaving as he's been traveling through the course of time in this DC universe here. That's you know something that Luthor has been trying to explain and trying to figure out and get the source of try to explain what this means for the DC universe. And he's slowly trying to put the pieces together. And at the same time, we get Ozymandias explaining his plan for the events that are about to go down and stuff we've seen happen in the previous Doomsday Clock issue. He, you know, makes some revelations as far as it was him all along who set up uh, that fateful encounter between Superman and Firestorm in Moscow that caused that big explosion because he wanted to turn the world against Superman, caused that mistrust against metahumans because it was already brewing because of the Superman theory. So we learned that that was the reason. But yet he also had that energy be linked to Dr. Manhattan's energy signal, which would cause the Justice League to, you know, trace it back to him on Mars so they can go up against him and they can be taken out and he wouldn't have to worry about them getting in the way. And his basic, you know, whole reason for coming here that was established, he's trying to get Dr. Manhattan back to save his world. But at the same time, He's realizing that, you know, this world is kind of on the path that the Watchmen world was on, too. And he thinks that he could save both by using Superman and Dr. Manhattan here. So um, not sure what his full endgame and full intention is to be um, as far as what he wants to accomplish with saving this world by using Dr. Manhattan Superman. So I guess we'll find that out in the last issue. Um, but. Like I said, a lot of exposition here. Some of it had to do a lot of backtracking because of the issues being so far apart from the release. But once you kind of look back on what happened, and I guess it is good that there was a lot of, you know, kind of recapping this one to make sure that you're getting the story uh, all pieced together before the final confrontation here. I do find, though, that I'm sure this is intentional and this is what Jeff Johns wants to, wants to do, but kind of a little repetitive of the original Watchmen story of Ozymandias having this big, plan to kind of frame Dr. Manhattan for those to not trust him or have him be the cause as a distraction to bring about world peace. And he kind of wants to do that again here. So part of me feel that's a little repetitive, but we'll see if it ends up working by uh, working well for the end story that Jeff Johns has planned here. So 
Another reveal of it here, too, was the reason why Dr. Manhattan spared Mime and Marionette, who played a pretty big role in the early first two issues. And we got to reveal that Marionette was pregnant. But and that's the reason why John spared her and didn't kill her at a bank robbery they were doing back in the Watchmen universe. And everyone's wondering why he did that. And it turns out because he saw that uh, their baby would be adopted by Night Owl and Silk Spectre and realized that that child would be a source of joy for Laurie, of course, you know, who he had a relationship with during Watchmen. And so we find out that, you know, Night Owl and Silk Spectre, they kind of live their lives outside of the superhero uh, realm and to start a family. So that's the reason why. Um, he spared Marionette and Mime, and that's why Ozymandias brought him into the DC universe, hoping that can get John's attention and try to get him back to save their world, to have that little piece, I guess, of humanity that John still has, and his, uh, for him caring for Silk Spectre to help him go back and save that world. So all this stuff, little things like that are getting revealed in this issue too. But the big moment comes in where Superman wakes up from his coma you know, things are crazy, like I said, between the governments. Um, Black Adam is attacking the U.S. And Superman, as they're about to attack the White House, Black Adam and his group of metahumans, Superman goes in to stop them. And they have come to blows, and Superman gets punched by Black Adam and gets thrown across, you know, several buildings. And that's where Dr. Manhattan, you see his monologue, starts saying, you know, the time has come to just six seconds now where Superman and I will meet. And you see how each panel is a countdown for each second. Five, four, three, two, one. And you see Superman look up and you see the panel of Superman and Dr. Manhattan face to face. And there's just something I think already iconic about that. <laughs> These two powerful beings, the faces of their universe and their world. And like I said, Jeff Johns wants this to be kind of a battle of ideals, one representing hope and the other despair. And even Dr. Manhattan doesn't know what's about to happen. He keeps saying throughout the course of Doomsday Clock that the last thing I see is me and Superman coming face to face. And now we get that moment. And I just cannot wait to see how this is going to go down. And neither can Ozymandias because that's the last panel. We need to see the logo of his saying, it's time. I guess we'll see fully what he expects to happen uh, for their confrontation, how that um, is all part of his plan as well. So, yeah, um, this issue, not my favorite out of all the Doomsday Clock ones, which I felt for overall have been great, but still some great setup here. And if it wasn't for all the, you know, expositions and kind of recaps, which I, like I said, it's kind of a good thing just to get you refreshed to what's going to happen in the final issue. But a lot of it made for kind of moments where once I read is like, okay, yeah, it was good to get this refresher, but I knew that already kind of wish we had two issues uh, well, I shouldn't say that just yet. I got to wait till we get the final issue because part of me is a little worried that the confrontation between Superman and Dr. Manhattan might n- need more than just one issue to have it be as great as it could be. But at the same time, maybe, you know, all it needs is just one issue. Their battle of ideologies only needs that portion of time. And I trust Jeff Johns to do what he feels is best as far as how he wants to wrap up the story and have this confrontation between Superman and Dr. Manhattan be. But right now, I just can't help but think that uh, with all the exposition we got in this issue, that maybe it could have been used um, elsewhere to have more time with Superman and Dr. Manhattan. But that's something where time will tell to see if it was a good decision or not. So, yeah, I cannot wait to get to see the final issue. I think this issue did a good job of setting up that uh, ultimate meeting that we've been waiting for between Superman and Dr. Manhattan. Um, but just not the most exciting issue out of 
all the ones we've gotten so far. So I'm going to give Doomsday Clock number 11 a three out of five times the Joker will get punched in his upcoming movie. Now, hopefully we won't see too many delays for Doomsday Clock number 12 because by the time we get to November, it'll be two years <laughs> since the story has been going on where it was originally supposed to be done in one year's time. But like I said, it's been worth the wait and I would rather have delays and have the quality not go down at all when it comes to the art. So I'm just looking forward to once I get all the issues, reading them all over again as one big story because I'm sure it'll, it'll even have a better effect because I've been enjoying this series a whole lot. It's just the weight that's been the hard part. But once I think you're able to read the story in one sitting, I think should make for, you know, a really cool story. Of course, depending on how it all wraps up in the next issue. So we'll see. But I'm definitely cannot wait to get my hands on that final issue. All right. So I guess that's it, right? Yep. A lot of stuff to talk about on this one. It's been a good few weeks for DC content on the movie front with that Joker trailer on the TV front with Titans, comic book front with Doomsday Clock and TMNT and Batman and uh, looking back on 10 years of Arkham. So we got all the media formats covered for Batman on this episode. <laughs> um, but yeah, just go over to BatmanUniverse.net, Facebook.com slash BatmanUniverse, Twitter handles at BatmanUniverse, Tim's Twitter handles at TimG311, uh, Mike's Twitter handles at DaneSaysBanana, uh, the show's handles at Batfans Podcast, and you can email the show at batfanswithoutpants at gmail.com. So, with that, like we say at the, the end of every single episode, we love each and every one of you with all of our Arkham memory hearts. <laughs> we'll see you guys next time. See you next time, everybody. Yeah.